Good morning. If you do not know who I am, my name is Pastor John, and I'm so glad that you are here worshiping with us and hearing from God's Word this morning. I also want to thank those of you who are watching online at this time. Today, to begin, I would like to talk about a word. It's not a word you see on your screen, but it's the word faith. Faith. What is faith? Faith is a word we often associate with religion, but we're often confused as to what it means. If you were to ask somebody on the street what faith means or having faith means, they'd probably, probably say something like believing in something, wishing that something would happen, believing something I can't see is going to happen. And is that faith or is faith something more? As we'll see today, a better definition of faith may be trust, trust that grows throughout our life. In fact, uh, Pastor Tom was preaching last week. He was sharing from Ephesians chapter 1. And at the very end of his message, he spoke about how the Apostle Paul was praying for his brothers and sisters in Christ. He was praying for them that they would grow in their knowledge of the gospel. And in the same way, we're going to talk about how our faith, our trust in God can grow this morning. To do that, we're going to be looking at the gospel or the good news according to Mark. We've been going through this book, if you've been here, seeking to answer that question, who is Jesus? Today, we're going to talk about how he is the one we have faith in. We're trying to figure out who Jesus is, but according to God's word, not according to what we may have thought about Jesus before, not according to a TV show or a movie, but what does God's word say about Jesus Christ? Now, we've just had the holidays, so it's been a while since we were looking here, but if you remember back to just before Christmas, if you were here, we were in Mark chapter 5, and we talked about how our one Savior, Jesus Christ, valued one demon-possessed man in need, and he went through great lengths to rescue this one man. And today, we're going to see that concern again for those in need. Jesus is going to heal two women in need in our passage today, which is Mark 5, verses 21 through 43. Now, the story we're going to talk about today is also in two of the other Gospels, Matthew chapter 9 and Luke chapter 8. What's very interesting about this story before we look at it is it's what uh, some scholars in a very technical term call a sandwich a sandwich, and some people phrase it as a Mark sandwich. It's a story that starts talking about one thing, and then it talks about something else, almost another story, interrupts it, and then at the end it goes back to that first story again. So you have the bread, like two of the same story, and something different in the middle. And by using this structure, our author Mark is inviting us to think about these two stories together. We could separate them in our minds, but he wants us to think about them together, to compare and contrast the characters we meet in this story, and to learn from the faith that they show in Jesus. And as we see the faith that the individuals in this story have, it would challenge us to ask ourselves, how much do I trust Jesus? How much do you trust Jesus. With that being said, please turn your Bibles if you have them or whatever way you're looking at scripture to Mark chapter 5 verses 21 through 43. If you want, you can use that blue Bible that's in the seat back in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that one with you. In the blue Bible, this story is, starts on page 999 and goes to page 1000. 
And once you are there in Mark chapter 5, uh, this is a bit of a longer section, so take that in mind. But if you are able, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word. And then follow along as I read our story today, and you'll see this kind of sandwich structure as we go through this story. So Mark chapter 5, we're going to be starting in verse 21. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 21 says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. We switch to the other story. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she she said, if I touch even his garments... I will be made well. Verse 29 tells us, And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Verse 31, His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Verse 36, But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Lord, as we approach your word this morning, 
Help us to see the faith in this story, the faith, the trust in you. God, teach us, build in us an earnest faith that grows, God, to a confident faith that's life-giving because it's based on you, God. You and your son, Jesus, the one who hears, the one who saves us, and the one who has all authority. God, I pray that we may see him clearly, his work, and how he is worthy of all faith and trust in him. It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to talk about different kinds of faith and trust that we see reflected in this story in kind of these three different parts, the first part, the second, and then when we come back to the first part. The first kind of faith we see is an earnest faith, an earnest faith in these first few verses. It's an example of what I would call a sincere, though imperfect faith, an earnest faith. Our passage tells us that Jesus is returning across the sea, the lake, to the region of Galilee. He was in a Gentile region where he healed that demon-possessed man, and now he's coming back to an area with a majority Jewish population. And Jesus is a Jew as well, so he's very popular in this area. It says that he crossed again in the boat to the other side, and as soon as he gets there, a great crowd gathers around him as he is beside the sea. And this is perfect timing because as soon as he arrives, as soon as he gets off the boat, there's someone who needs his help. When he gets off the boat, he is met by a ruler or a leader of the synagogue, which was the local Jewish place of worship. And this man's name is Jairus, or some may say Jairus. When I was growing up, for some reason I thought it was Jarius. I don't know where I got that other I, but whatever you want to call him, that was his name. This man was probably a Pharisee. He was probably someone passionate about God's law, a Pharisee. But it's interesting that Mark doesn't use that word because in his gospel, the Pharisees are often the opponents of Jesus. So he probably was one, but he doesn't use that to keep that conflict clear in our minds. As a ruler of the synagogue, he was probably someone who organized the weekly religious services. He may have taught in the synagogue regularly. It would have been a position of wealth and power and respect. But here in this story, we see that wealth, power, our position in life, that does not matter when sickness comes to our loved ones. Sickness is the great leveler throughout society. No matter how high you can rise, sickness can still come. His daughter was sick, and there was nothing all his wealth and power could do for her. And this would have been a very surprising sight to have this ruler of the synagogue, this respected man, falling down at the feet of this common man, this common carpenter, this traveling man who didn't even have a home, didn't have property. It would have been surprising, but Jairus is desperate, and he sincerely fell at Jesus' feet to make this important request. Verse 23 tells us that he implored, he pleaded, he begged him earnestly and fervently for his little girl. He says, my little daughter is at the point of death. That kind of phrase, little daughter, it's similar to how we might, uh, a father now might call his daughter his baby girl. That's the emphasis there. It's a term of great affection for his daughter. He loved her. If we're reading this story in the Gospel of Luke, Luke says that she is his only daughter. We see that she's at the point of death. She does not have much time left. 
It's a matter of minutes, not a matter of hours or days before she is gone. Jairus comes to Jesus, and he wants Jesus to come to his home to lay his hands on her, which was how Jesus normally healed. There's some irony in what he says here in verse 23, because he asks Jesus, come lay your hands on her. Why? So that she may be made well and live, and live. And we'll discover later, Jesus has to take some pretty extraordinary steps to make that request happen. Now, Jairus is sincere. He's desperate for his daughter to be healed, and that's completely understandable. It's his daughter. He cares about her. He wants Jesus to come. There's there's nothing wrong with that. We can understand why he would feel that way. If we were going to bring up a minor criticism of his faith, it's that he comes to Jesus and tells Jesus, Jesus, this is what you need to do for me right now. I'm asking you, but please come and do this for me right now. He thinks he knows what is best and what he needs Jesus to do. In some ways, that's similar how in our prayers, we sometimes think we know what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. We may ask God, God, this is going on. You need to do this right now in this way. We may be desperate and sincere. I'm, I'm not saying that it's wrong necessarily to feel that way. It's just that perhaps there's a better way for our faith to work. Instead, we often seek a solution for our needs in our prayer when we approach God rather than seeking to be closer to our Savior. I was reading this week uh, Pastor John Agnell James, and he put it this way. He said, Many, I believe, act towards the deity, act towards God, as they do towards their friends. They make up their minds and then ask to be directed. Sometimes we think, God, this is what you have to do, so I'm telling you what you have to do right now. On the other hand, we're about to see a more mature faith that doesn't demand, but instead trust that God knows what is best. We'll especially see this contrast when we get to the next section with this woman who doesn't ask anything of Jesus, but just wants to get close to him and trust him to take care of her need. So at this point, Jairus's faith is commendable. He's going to Jesus, but it's imperfect. He's earnest in his desire, but lacking in some trust. He's going to the right place. He goes to Jesus, ask him for help, but he needs to grow in his trust. And we'll see that growth when we pick up this story again later. Yet, even though his faith's imperfect, Jesus still hears him. Jesus hears our imperfect cries. Our text says that he went with him. He goes with Jairus. Because we can have earnest faith in the one who hears us, in the one who cares for us. Using the blank, that's the one who hears. Jesus hears what Jairus says and goes with him. Jesus doesn't demand that we have perfect faith, that our theology, what we believe about God is all right, and that we check every box before he acts on our behalf. He doesn't insist that we have all the answers, that we're an ace of Bible trivia. No, we should go to him when we have a need, as Jairus does. But we should also be willing to have our faith challenged so that we grow in our faith which is what he does for Jairus and the rest of our story. Because that way we can grow, we can develop from an earnest faith into a confident faith, a confident faith. And that's the faith we see in this woman, a confident faith. The picture you see on the screen, there was a group of us from church several years ago who We're privileged to go to Israel and tour some of the area around there. And we were in a church where 
this text doesn't say, but traditionally this story with the woman happened. It's tradition. No one knows that for sure. And uh, in that spot where traditionally this happened, someone had a painting with the woman reaching through the crowd to touch the bottom of Jesus' robe. And someone took a picture of that painting. So in this confident faith of this woman, we, we see the emphasis here in Mark's text. Remember, I said it's this sandwich. It starts with Jairus and his daughter's story, this woman, then it goes back to Jairus and his daughter. That means the emphasis is here. I mean, think about a sandwich. If you're eating a sandwich, hopefully the best part of the sandwich is not the bread on either side. Hopefully it's what's in the middle. This is the main focus of this passage. We're told in verse 24 that there's a great crowd that's thronging, pressing around Jesus. The idea is Jesus and Jairus, they're shuffling, pushing through this crowd desperately, trying to make it to his house before his daughter passes away. And in this crowd, we meet a new character, a woman who is said to have a constant discharge of blood, a bleeding issue, a hemorrhage. And we find out that she had spent all that she had on doctors and physicians, but it only got worse. The text says there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Now it seems that this woman is out of money and out of options. She's like that demon-possessed man that we talked about the last time we were in Mark. There was no one who could help her. She is sick, she's poor, and she's alone. She would have been physically weak, but what may have been worse is that by the laws of God's people, she was also ceremonially unclean. She was an unclean woman. God's law talks about this back in the Old Testament. Leviticus 15 says, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, not, not her period, but beyond that time of impurity, then all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. So while she may have been physically sickly, she was bleeding all the time, she was spiritually unable to worship God with her friends and neighbors. They would gather together to worship God, like we come to church, they would gather in a synagogue or at the temple, but because she was unclean, she was not allowed to be there. The law also says that she made everyone she touched and anything she touched unclean. And since she was always unclean, she wouldn't have been someone you wanted in your home. If you were living in that first century or that time, you would want to be able to go and worship God and not have to do a, a ritual to make yourself pure, so you would have stayed away from this woman. That meant that at this time, she was probably unmarried, probably childless, and both of those made life very hard for women in the first century. And because of that condition, she was actually supposed to walk around calling out that she was unclean so that people stayed away from her. It was a life of loneliness. Yet, as we read and as we'll see, when she touched Jesus, instead of making him unclean, Jesus made her clean. Jesus' power is such that he cannot be made unclean. He makes sinners the broken clean. He alone can overcome our 
uncleanness. He can overcome the sickness that we have of sin. He can do that. For now, though, back in our text in 27 and 28, the woman sought to touch Jesus's garment. The emphasis is his garment. She heard the reports about Jesus, came up behind him to touch his garment, his cloak, his robe. What she's told herself was, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. I will be healed. Now, we could be very critical of this. We could say maybe that's the pagan idea that if somebody's holy, you touch them, then you uh, become clean. But it seems that her heart, her faith are in the right place because she had heard of Jesus and she believed that he could help her. She determined that she would find healing and peace. In her mind, the connection went, this guy can help me, and all I have to do is be close to him. If I'm close to Jesus, I'll have the healing that I need. All I have to be is close to him, and I'll be okay. She understood, as Pastor Spurgeon wrote, that the best of men, the whole of men, cannot benefit you an ounce, but the least drop of Christ, the least touch of Christ, will save. This is true, godly, confident faith. Unlike Jairus, who, again, we understand what he's doing, but in his desperation says, Jesus, I need you to come and do this right now. Instead, this woman says, I just want to come to Jesus, and if I get close to him, then everything will be okay. Being close will be good enough. Another pastor, J.C. Ryle, put it this way, many follow Jesus from curiosity, and they derived, they got no benefit from him if they were just curious about him. In this story, there's one and only one who followed under a deep sense of her need and of our Savior's power to relieve her. And that one received a mighty blessing. And that's exactly what happens in verse 29. We read that immediately, instantly, the healing happened and she is freed from her suffering. Verse 29, immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. From constant flow of blood to nothing. And it's here that I have to confess my ignorance of fully grasping that. Because I, I'm not a woman, so I can't fully appreciate what's happening in this moment. And I'm not trying to be crass, but, but ladies, this is a story that you can really understand and grasp in a way that the men in this room cannot. You, you know what it feels like. Imagine that there was a period that went for 12 years, never stopping, and then all of a sudden, it's gone. It's over. It stops. I can't imagine what that's like. You can understand that far better than I can, and that must have been an incredible feeling for her. And somehow in that moment, Jesus has sensed that this has happened, that, that something has occurred at this moment. Being touched by one with faith who trusted in him activated some healing power in him. Jesus perceived in himself that the power had gone out from him. And he immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now, there's a, a lot of debate about, did Jesus like will his power to go to the woman? What, what's going on here in this moment? How did it happen? And some say, oh, Jesus, he knew she was coming, and so he sent his power that way when she came. Uh, 
I think Mark's emphasis seems to be that it's an involuntary healing, that God healed through Jesus's power without his human knowledge right in this moment. Yes, Jesus is God, but he even says there's some things that, as he was a human, that God knew that he didn't. And this seems to be one of those cases. He didn't know it was going to happen, but once it happened, he was like, something has happened. God has worked through me. He knows this interruption is a key moment to highlight his power and the importance of faith. And so he seeks to find this person, to draw whoever this is. Perhaps he knew at this point that it was this woman, to draw out her faith and to make it clear that a miracle had happened. That's Jesus' goal. His disciples, though, don't know what has happened in this moment. They respond by pointing out the crowd. Jesus, you see this crowd pressing around you. How can you say, who touched me? They miss that true faith had been demonstrated. Jesus is looking around for this person who touched him, though, in faith. I really like how St. Augustine, he's one of the early church fathers, he put it very simply, describing this passage so succinctly. He said, all this crowd around him, in their human flesh, they may be pressing against Jesus, but this woman in faith touches. The flesh presses against Jesus, but faith touches this faithful woman can tell that Jesus is looking for her, hears it, and so she realizes what she must do. She comes forward, and we're told in verse 33 that she falls before Jesus, just like Jairus did. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him, told him the whole truth. Why, though, did she do this with fear and trembling? Is it because she knew she wasn't supposed to touch other people and since she was in the crowd, was she afraid of what they might do? Well, if that's that's the case, then it seems that her fear was overwhelmed by the trust that led her to reach for her Savior. But I think it's more likely that this fear and trembling is coming from her deep awe at the presence of God and what God had done for her. She's amazed at this miracle that had happened. And so she comes and tells Jesus the whole truth. If God does something for us, we should want to tell others. We should want to proclaim our faith. I believe, trusted in God, and he has worked in my life. We should tell others what he has done. If you were here last week, we had a wonderful picture of that. We had four people get baptized last week. They were proclaiming, God has done a work in my life. And they were showing that to all of us, proclaiming publicly what he has done. In the same way, this woman is confident in Jesus and in her faith in him. So she tells the truth. She tells her story for all who are around to hear. And instead of rejecting her, she was someone who was unclean before. No, Jesus welcomes her into the family of God. He brings this outsider in. Look what he says in 34. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. It has healed you. Go in peace, be healed, cured of your disease, be freed from your suffering and your affliction. In this moment, this woman was saved physically and spiritually. She had fear, but Jesus offered her peace. Peace with him, peace with God. She could now live with the other people around her because she is now clean. And also, look how much Jesus values this woman. 
Jesus has been approached by the ruler of the synagogue, maybe the most powerful man in that particular town, to do something for him. And then all of a sudden, this woman who lived alone, maybe no one knew her, this woman who no one was supposed to spend time with, instead he delivers her healing before the healing that Jairus asked for. He focused on this isolated woman rather than this rich, influential man. Jesus is not swayed by appearances. He acts according to God's purpose. And why did this happen? Why did he act in this way? Well, because this woman had confident faith in the one who saves. It's not that the that her touch was particularly magic. It's not that magic flowed through Jesus' clothes. No, it's because she had faith and trust in Jesus' power. This is what we see throughout this story. From both Jairus and this woman, they know that Jesus alone can help. They know that they are unworthy. They both fall down before him. They both believe that he can heal. They have faith. Jesus sees and he acts through the faith of his people. We see this throughout the Gospels. In Matthew 15, Jesus is talking to another woman, and he says, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. In Mark 10, later in Mark, Jesus is talking to a man and says, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This woman in this passage had model faith. She was humble, she understood who Jesus was, but she was determined to get to him, and she hoped and trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe we can talk about how her faith or actions were, were imperfect, but her faith was pure in its object, in its focus. No, she says, it's not that I want to touch a robe. She doesn't say that. No, she wants to touch his garments. The garments, the robe of Jesus Christ. Her focus wasn't on if I can just get close to these clothes. No, it was if I can get close to Jesus. And Jesus saw her small faith, his healing power, worked through it. That's the faith that we need. That's the trust that we need. As Pastor Spurgeon says, faith is trusting, trusting wholly upon the person, work, merit, and power of the Son of God. Faith is trusting in Jesus. It's not assuming, it's not demanding, Jesus, I need you to do this. It is whole trust in him. As J.C. Ryle put it, faith brings an empty hand, receives everything, and can give nothing in return. Faith is, I trust you, Jesus. Do what you will. Receives what he has to give. Now, I want to put some clarity here in that it's not that it's our faith that's producing this healing. God is healing. Jesus is the one who is healing, but he used her faith to bring that healing and salvation to her. Now she had a new identity, a new eternal purpose. So the same is true for us. If we have a need, a burden, the call to us is to have faith, to trust Jesus, to trust him to act, to heal, to work according to his timing in his way. Having faith and trust in Jesus is not a guarantee of results. Oh, if I have faith, if I do X, then he has to do Y for me. No, it's faith and trust that he will do what is good according to God's will. 
This passage is not a call for us that, well, things aren't working out in my life, so I need to produce more faith in my life. If I had more faith, then things would work out for me. No, you're missing the emphasis. This woman's faith was great because she wanted to get close to Jesus. She wanted to draw close to him. That was why her faith was praised by our Savior. The call is for us to know Jesus more, to seek him more, to grow closer to him. Another place that uses this language is in Luke 7. It's a different context, but again, Jesus is speaking to a woman, and he says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus responds to our pain. He offers his salvation to those who do not know him. Jesus came, he lived here among us, and the way he lived was such that he did no wrong. He was never unclean. And then he died to pay for what our sin does, how our sin, our wrong, pushes us away from God. And he rose again so that we could be clean, we could be right with God, we could be a part of his family. Our faith and trust is trusting that that is true and seeking to know him more. God brings his salvation to us by working through our faith and our trust in Jesus. So let me challenge you, do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ? Faith in him can save because faith in Jesus is a life-giving faith. It's a life-giving faith. That's the third type of faith we'll see in our passage, a life-giving faith. Here we return to the story of Jairus and his daughter. It's really all one story. It all fits together, but we're going back to what we started with. And this last section will highlight Jesus' amazing power to heal. Our text has a very abrupt change. We've just had this amazing encounter with this healed woman, and then all of a sudden we have a dead daughter. Some messengers come to Jairus and they say, there's no use having Jesus come to the house now. Verse 35, while Jesus is still speaking, he's still talking to this woman, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But Jesus, he still wants to hear from his people. He still wants to work his purposes for them. He'd rescued one of his spiritual daughters, and now he's going to save another. Jesus heard what these men said, and he chose to ignore it. And instead, he tells Jairus in verse 36, Do not fear. Do not be afraid only believe, or just believe, or have faith. Trust me. Tells him, stop fearing. Keep on believing, trusting in what I can do. You came to me trusting that I could help you. Keep doing that now. Jairus may have been afraid in this moment. Is all lost? Is his daughter gone forever? But he's called to trust Jesus. Because faith is the antidote. It's the solution to our fear. When we're consumed with the worries of life, our call is to trust Christ. He desires that we move away from just wishing things would work out to fully trusting in his goodness. There's another story where he's talking to a loved one of someone who died in John 11. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me Though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me 
shall never die. And then the challenge, do you believe this? Do you believe this? That's what Jesus is doing now for Jairus when he says, do not fear, only believe. St. Jairus, you just saw a woman who had confident faith in me. She trusted that if she just got close, she would be healed. Jairus, I'm asking you to have that same trust in me right now. Respond, believe, hold to hope based on the faith and miracle that you just saw. And we don't get Jairus' response, his words, but he continues to bring Jesus to his house. His actions reveal his trust in Jesus. As they approach the house, we read in verse 37 that Jesus only brings his inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, to see this resurrection that's about to happen. Jesus was very concerned about people misunderstanding who he was and what he was doing. His mission was to give eternal life, so he tried to limit the number of witnesses to this miracle. When they get in the house in verse 38, they see what the text calls a commotion, a tumult, a sad uproar here in the house. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Now that might strike us as, as a little odd from our context today. Now, perhaps some of those wailing, weeping were the family of that little girl, but in this day, it was also very common to hire professional mourners, people whose full-time job was to go to where people died and funerals and weep and wail and cry loudly. That may sound strange to us, but that was common in this day and age. It wasn't explicitly said, but kind of the idea was the more people who cried for you and the louder they cried for you, the more you were loved. That was kind of the cultural idea. So that's what's happening here at this house. But it also tells us about what Jairus and his family were thinking. They must have expected that their daughter was going to die because they'd already gone through the steps to hire these mourners. It would be like going through making funeral arrangements before a loved one passes away. They've, they've already done the steps. They're already there. They're already ready for this to happen. They expected her to die. Jesus, though, he says this is unnecessary because he says the girl is not dead. The child is not dead. She is sleeping. She is sleeping. And that's a word Jesus often uses to talk about the death of his people. In John 11, his friend Lazarus passes away and Jesus says to his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. To Jesus, death of his people is just a sleep that they need to wake up from. The crowd, though, they take Jesus very literally. They mock him for not accepting death. It says in verse 40 that they laughed at him. They laughed at him. But Jesus knows what's happening here. He knows the girl is dead, but he knows this death is only temporary. And so in that sense, it is more like sleep. And to avoid a distraction of this discouraging crowd, he has them leave, and he only asks the family to stay. The rest of verse 40 says, He put them all outside, and he took the child's father, mother, those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Those who doubt Jesus, those who don't have faith and trust in him, those who mock him, they're left outside. They don't get to see his work like those who believe and trust in him. So Jesus comes up to the girl in verse 41. It says he takes her by the hand, which was another way that he heals in Scripture. And again, this is just like that woman. Jesus 
by the law standards, he's becoming unclean. Yes, you weren't supposed to touch somebody who had a bleeding issue, but also if you touched a dead body, you were unclean. But once again, Jesus' touch brings healing and life. He overcomes uncleanness and sin. One scholar, Mark Strauss, says the point is that with the coming of his kingdom, Jesus reverses the results of defilement, the results of uncleanness. And instead, he brings in purity and healing to a fallen creation. We believe that our ancient ancestors, man, woman, they sinned, they rebelled against God, and they've polluted this world. Jesus came to bring purity and healing into this creation. We see that happening here as he touches this girl and he says to her two words in the language of Aramaic. These would have been the actual words Jesus spoke to this young lady, Talitha Kumi. Perhaps this is Mark reflecting the eyewitness testimony he has of this story. If you remember when we started this series, we talked about how Mark may have been discipled, trained by the apostle Peter. And so maybe Peter's sitting down with him, telling him this story. Jesus grabbed her hand. He said, Talitha Kumi. And Mark said, that's great, but the people I'm writing to don't, doesn't know what that means, so I'm going to have to translate that for him. And Peter said, okay, that's okay. I don't know if that's what happened. I, I think he's just reflecting that he actually heard this from someone who was there. And what does that mean? It means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Jesus can say to someone who is dead, arise, get up, and they obey. They listen to him. They do what he says. Why? Because he is the one with authority. He's the one who has all authority over everything, including death. We can have life-giving faith in him that he will save us. He will bring us to eternal life because he is the one with authority. He has resurrection power over life and death. The last time we were in Mark, we saw he had power over demons, over spiritual forces, and now he has power over death itself. That's the emphasis this text has been driving us toward. The details prove that this miracle happened. There's all these professional mourners. They see people die all the time. And when Jesus says she's asleep, they laugh. They say, no, she's dead. We know what a dead girl looks like, Jesus. She is dead, but they're wrong because Jesus brings life. Jesus says, arise. And this is not the only time he does that. In Luke, we read about a young man who died. And Jesus came up and he touched that young man's funeral bier where he was being carried. The bearers stood still. He says to that young man, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up, began to speak. Jesus gave him to his mother. Jesus has authority over death. And these little resurrections we see here give us hope, give us confidence that an eternal future resurrection is waiting us, that we will have an eternity with our Lord when he returns. In this moment, though, Jesus says, arise, and we read that immediately, instantly, the little girl stood up and walked. She recovered at once. And those who saw that were immediately amazed and astonished. It's not necessarily that they had full faith in Jesus at the moment, but they saw something they would never forget. Immediately, the girl got up and began walking because she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome 
with amazement. Oh, I'm sure for her parents, that, that's a joy that would be hard to imagine, seeing your daughter die, and then all of a sudden, there she is, alive again. And we may wonder about, why is there that little detail there telling us how old she is? Well, that's explaining why she can walk, but it's also interesting if we think about this story together, because in our passage today, we've seen Jesus bring healing and life to a 12-year-old girl, and also to a woman who suffered from a bleeding issue for 12 years. We see both of those to see Jesus has healed both of them. Even if something goes on for 12 years, he can bring healing. In the very last verse of our passage, Jesus tries to slow down the rumors again. He strictly charges them that no one should know this. He doesn't want any misunderstanding. This is a big miracle. People would think he's interested in taking over the world by force. And he doesn't want to build his kingdom through conquest and popularity. He builds his kingdom through faith, through people who have a relationship with him. And then a fun little note at the end there, he also tells his parents to give the girl something to eat. He also cares for this girl's basic needs, which probably became forgotten during the excitement. I mean, she had been sick for days and days. She probably hadn't eaten much. She got up. She feels good now. Maybe she wanted to go get some food, but her parents are excited to run and grab her. They're jumping around in a circle, and Jesus says, hey, why don't you get her something to eat? The poor girl is hungry. It's a little detail that we see this one with authority over all things cares for us. So what? What does all of this mean for us? We've seen Jairus had some earnest faith. He, he knew what he wanted. He went to Christ. But then he saw an example of someone with confident faith, this woman who said, I need to get to Jesus close to him. He'll take care of me. And so both of them arrived at a place of life-giving faith, as pictured in this girl being raised from the dead. And so the question to you is, how much do you trust Jesus? What kind of faith do you have? We've seen that Jesus cares for us. He, he hears us. We can come to him with whatever we need. We can come earnestly, confidently, in a way that gives life. Again, though, we can take these texts, we can twist them to other purposes. Jesus' timing may be different from our timing. This woman had this bleeding issue for 12 years. Jairus's, or the girl's parents, Jairus and his wife, they had to watch their daughter die. These things happened. We may not see every part of God's purposes immediately or even in this lifetime. There may be outsiders like those mourners who may mock us for having faith or trust in Christ, but though others may mock, may not understand, our call is to trust him, to have faith. As he says to Jairus, only just believe. He cares and he is doing what is best. He is worthy of trust. And if you do not know him, if you do not have a relationship with him, then look at the example of these characters. They had brokenness, they had pain in their lives, but they humbled themselves before Christ. They said, you are the one who has authority. We need you. If you do not, Jesus, then turn away from the sin, the wrong that you do. Have faith in him, the one who hears, the one who saves, and the one who has authority. As Pastor Spurgeon said, if you are not trusting in the Lamb, in Jesus here on earth, then you will not reign with the Lamb in glory. Now is the time to trust Jesus. 
Will you come to humble faith and trust in Him? I hope you will. I hope you'll talk to me about that, about coming to Him, because He alone is worthy of our trust.